Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. 23 months ago, we started Food for Thought in hopes of building some positive momentum to effectively change the conversation about food insecurity across Michigan. I started that broadcast with a quote from St. Francis. He said, start by doing what is necessary, then what is possible, and before you know it, you will be doing the impossible. Here's a question we get often. Jerry, Phil, do you guys really believe it's possible to solve hunger? Really? Yes, we do. And one reason is because of what Jerry says. You will never solve a problem you don't think can be solved. We think about solving food insecurity in terms of a solution, an end in mind, a time when only the smallest percentage of people possible are without sufficient access to healthy, nutritious food. Candidly, you can't think about solving a challenge in terms of acceptable number of people who go hungry or what's an okay percentage of people who will never become food secure. What if NASA had approached the lunar landing with this mindset? Would we be exploring Mars today? I think not. What if we all collectively decided a few short years ago, Detroit is done. There's no sense investing in this city. Would we be enjoying the inspiring renaissance of the Motor City that is happening right now? I think not. We can play the what-if game with all the great accomplishments of mankind, medicine, architecture, science, travel. What if they never dreamed? What if they never believed? Then they would have never tried. Where would we be? Well, certainly not where we are today. When you change your thinking, you change the possibilities. While we've just begun to change the conversation about food security, we are discovering that people, I mean really smart people, are beginning to approach us about why we believe we can solve hunger, and they are walking alongside of us as we create this actionable blueprint for a food-secure Michigan. One of those brilliant people is with us today in the studio, Dr. Don Opel, a professor at MSU who is definitely one of the smartest people I know. But as smart as Dawn is, I think she is an even better person. She's our guest, and she's with us today on this edition of Food for Thought. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Phil Knight here with Jerry Brisson in the studio. Jerry, great to see you. Happy Always holidays. a pleasure, but seeing me is nothing at all like seeing our guest, who is so delightful, and we're so excited to have her. Let's just get right to it. Okay. Dr. Dawn <laughs> Opel, or Opel, is that which it's one? Opel. Do you... Opel is good. Opel's good. Like the German car. Right. Okay. 
Katie coached me up on that. So, <laughs> you know, all the times we met, I really never asked you that before, but we were so excited to have you in studio here with Food for Thought. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here, and I can't wait to talk to you all today. Well, it's, let's just dive into the great, you know, the deep end of the pool here and talk about you know, your background is absolutely astonishing. I was telling Mark, our producer, about it when I got here early today. I mean, you hold a, a, a Juris Doctorate, you have a PhD, and it's you're just like one of the most brilliant people that I know. And I'm so excited that you're passionate about this mission and helping the population that we all serve. Well, Phil, that is uh, no pressure there, (laughs) but but thank you very much. I mean, I really see my background as I started as a legal services attorney. I worked for a legal aid society and um, and worked um, really feel like I've been doing the same work pretty much my whole career, just in various kinds of ways. So um, so sort of the vantage point I've had with the work that I do has changed slightly from working inside of a legal clinic to um, then working in higher education and now um, working in communities, um, doing engaged research. Um, but really, the the issues that we're looking at um, that you and I and Jerry are all working on together are things that I've been working on for 20 years just in different ways. So I've sort of looked at ways to work on it at, at, the, at the level of individual client service, where right. I'm really working one-on-one with people in communities, to starting to think more broadly and, and holistically about the ways that, um, that, that agencies, the government, um, you know, higher education research, the way that all of these things fit together to create our public policy and shape the world that we live in. Well, I I think that it just gives you a tremendous perspective. Because like you say, I mean, from serving the clients now to looking at it more holistically as how policy impacts us. I mean, those are in every perspective in between as well. I mean, you've worked in healthcare and now in higher education and you're yeah, and we want to get into the research part of that in just a little bit. But I think all of those perspectives give you a very unique vantage point that a lot of the rest of us don't have. And we're very appreciative of it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I like to think that I kind of serve as a node that connects people because I have a lot of, since I've worked as a practitioner and I've, you know, worked in nonprofit sector, worked for the federal government, worked for, right. um, and then worked with folks from all different areas of the country. Um, I feel like I can kind of connect people in ways that maybe other academic researchers don't do quite as much. And so my hope with that is that it means that my research can really translate into um, action and really really um, be more impactful as a result because I'm bringing so many folks along with me. And I think that's one of the things Jerry really appreciates. I mean, to do research for research is one thing, but research for impact and how does that really flow and help the people that we're serving is something I think that we both, and he in particular, really appreciate. And I'd even say all of us food bankers are a little bit more on the applied side of life, right? I mean, Absolutely. you know, we like to know things, but we really like to do things. And <laughs> so we end up in that space a lot where we want to know things so we can do things. And I, I, I think that we've talked on this show several times about you can't solve a problem like food insecurity and hunger if you don't know who's hungry, how much help do they need, and for how long. Right. It's just a very basic kind of framing of what is the issue. And so the work that you're doing in particular is helping to answer that in very specific ways. You know, who's hungry? How often are people coming into the system hungry? What can we learn about that? Just just 
that answer begins to then say, well, okay, so now that we know the answer to just that very simple question, we can start to postulate about then how much help is needed. And so even if you only got that far, you'd be one step further. And I know that's a little too um, oh mysterious, maybe. So we need to get concrete. So we're going to ask you some concrete question about how are you learning about this and, and what are you learning? Sure. So I'm working in various contexts, as Phil talked about. Um, it started about three years ago. I uh, began working at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, Michigan, and um, I was brought in as an as a, a researcher in residence, so to speak, to look at places where I could assist the clinicians there um, with issues that really on the ground were facing them. And um, and I and was charged with. Uh, designing a research project or many research projects that could assist, that were really action-oriented, looking at how we could improve quality of care in the hospital. And one of the things that I had been working on uh, prior to arriving in Michigan was looking at how various uh, under-resourced practitioners could take advantage of various provisions of the Affordable Care Act and, um, and work toward more preventative care, work toward more comprehensive, coordinated care with uh, outside of the clinic and inside of the clinic. So I started to kind of connect uh, questions that I was hearing um, at the hospital with uh, issues that I had seen when I was doing more ACA-related work and uh, met a social worker that was working in the senior health clinic there. And she talked about a lot uh, how we could better reach out to community-based organizations to start thinking about how we could coordinate services for patients that were under-resourced. And so as a result of doing that, we began to look at potential uh, interventions using technology to connect, to better sync up. Um, first, just finding a way to locate the community-based organizations in the area. So we have certain kinds of, in mid-Michigan, we have certain kinds of directories or databases. We have an, um, a resource called 211, um, where you can look up some kinds of resources and services in a, in a particular geographic area. But we really didn't have a way of thinking about a network of care, of how we could think about, you know, um, you know, we start to realize, and and I know that I've talked about this with both you, with you both um, in various uh, meetings about how we can think about how we not just work as one nonprofit or one agency or one clinic doing one thing, but how we can think about networking our services mm -hmm. and, and really thinking about that we serve as um, a much more comprehensive unit if we all work together. And so what does that look like um, for healthcare to be able to reach out to the community? What does the coordination of care efforts look like? So we began a pilot um, using a networking application that really did have a database that allowed us to search and locate particular services for older adults um, in our area, and then um, and then have a practitioner on the healthcare side be able to um, to contact. Um, to contact those agencies and start to put care 
plans together through the application. So it's a cloud-based HIPAA compliant application. There are lots of them out there. And one of the things that I spend a lot of time talking about is that technology is not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve all of the problems that we have um, in, uh, you know, in communication. However, um, it does get people mobilized and thinking about how mm-hmm. they could work together. Right. So really, it was meant to start a conversation and maybe shift culture a little bit to stop thinking less about more clinical, you know, that that someone presents as a body to be treated clinically, but to be thinking about a person's life and their health and wellness and what it takes for a person to be well. Um, and that, that, you know, that it truly does take a village for that to happen. Well, and you're talking about work supports here and that people can leverage to go to the next level of food security and, and self-sufficiency. When, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. And I, I think we are in the deep end of the pool now, and we'll pick this up. You guys come back and be with us. This is Dr. Phil Knight, Jerry Brisson, and Dr. Don Opal. We'll be right back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. We're back. It's Food for Thought. Dr. Phil Knight here with uh, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Don Opal from uh, Michigan State University, who is an uh, assistant professor, but really, really, I think the passion, not that you don't love teaching and everything, but research for applied, for application, real world results is is if I were going to introduce you, which I think I just did, then that's one of the ways that I would do that. Well, I love to go into the community every day. And so I really believe that the privilege of being an academic is that is that MSU is is funded by the Michiganders in the state of Michigan. And I get out there every day and make sure that what they're paying for gets, you know, they get the most bang for their buck. So trying to make uh, the state of Michigan as healthy as possible is really what I see my job to be. Well, that's, that's, um, we have some, we have some, Upward mobility and and helping Michigan get healthy. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. We did a show not long ago where we compared uh, our our health rating to our third grade reading scores, and we were about the same, thirty fourth. 35th something like that and so out of out of all the states out yes. of all the states yeah. right and so, so not in the quartile that you want to be in right. yeah so so, so we're, we we're have work, work to do yeah we've got we've got upward mobility yes we you, do yes yes so, we do all right so you guys in the break there were having an excellent show that i had to interrupt <laughs> so jerry why don't you get us back on track yeah so i mean i, I we're talking about coordinated care which is the first step in really getting to a place where you can understand the scope of the problem and the and the needs people are presenting. And as you start to solve for those needs, then you get a better idea of who has to be in the network based on real numbers and real people. So tell us a little bit first about, so after a year or so since we talked last, how many people are in the network now and, and how is that going? Sure. So what I will say is that I've had an excellent partnership with a collaborative in, in mid-Michigan that's focused on care transitions. So uh, so that is a group of care managers, folks in healthcare, social workers, um, social services, Department of Social Services, various agencies from around mid-Michigan. Um, and they've they've been uh, really great supporters of the project. Now, there's what's, what's interesting to me and one of the, my favorite parts of my work is that there's a 
difference between advocacy and a pilot study. You know, the yeah. you know the sort of the yeah. this is the research part. Um, I really see myself as a participatory action researcher. So we're all working together to solve a problem, right? And we all um, the folks there really know what the problem is. So that's really helpful. Now, what happens on the ground when we start coordinating uh, patient care is a whole nother ball of wax because we've got um, what this pilot was designed to see is what kinds of patients and clients could we serve? You know, what who are we looking to serve and what will um, healthcare be able to absorb as sort of a workflow that works for them um, or not? And so we have been kind of traversing that, that road together. Uh, but I would say that right now I'm working with clinicians at Sparrow with uh, the, tri- the Tri-County uh, Office on Aging, which is the social services organization, the mm-hmm. umbrella that does do a lot of work for older adults that coordinates or, uh, preventative health and wellness cor- classes, services like Meals on Wheels, um, lots of different, you know, long-term care, um, lots of different services for for older adult Michiganders. Um, and, then, and then agencies spread here and there who are sort of early adopters and advocates of this. Now, the interesting part is, is that the first idea we had was let's get everybody connected and try to work on um, care plans inside of an application so everyone can can kind of write together and see what everyone else is doing. The second step is really to see how we can work over a longer period of time and also to think about how it affects the different agencies that are all connected in this network. So that's really where we are now is thinking about and also now as we expand this project to work in other areas of the state. Um, I'm working with the Michigan State University Extension um, on a project in the Upper Peninsula that is a three-year project to also help older adults, particularly those with risk of falls, um, to think about the ways that we can coordinate health care and preventative care. Um, I'm working on another project uh, that will uh, train internal me- medicine residents throughout the state of Michigan uh, to better uh, understand the social determinants of health or um, the kinds of things like food security that we work on and think about how they can start to get a radar for thinking about more than just clinical um, kinds of uh, remedies for the problems that that everyday people face that they'll that they'll treat. So so thinking about food security, housing, transportation, other social determinants of health. Um, so my hope is that we can train a new generation from the bottom up too, and think about then the way they go to then um, practice medicine. A lot of doctor monas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, just to kind of put this in a little bit of the context of things we've talked about on our show. So, first of all, um, we'll never get anywhere toward understanding how much of food security should healthcare be helping us solve if we don't have some answers to the question how many people show up needing healthcare who are food insecure. So, one of the things that your application does is it documents. These are the things that people are showing up with. These are the conditions people have, whether they're officially social determinants of health or not. By networking nonprofits with the hospital, with the government and everything else to coordinate that care, in essence, one of the important things you're doing is documenting just how many people are showing up with conditions besides, you know, reimbursable health conditions that actually are impacting their health and well-being. And so that documentation, that formal 
cataloging of that is one of the key things we need in order to make a case for how much should healthcare care about this. You're absolutely right. And I have lots of thoughts on that because uh, there's one of the things that the Healthy People 2020 initiative that's a Mm -hmm. federal government um, program uh, requires of particularly federally qualified health centers and other other types of clinics, um, but primarily primary care, is to start screening for these kinds of issues. Um, So but the question is, in a 15 minutes you know, intake interview, how much can you screen for? Right. And how far do you go? So one of the things that we've been looking at are, are the creation of screening tools to, to help um, to help the, the, the a clinician that does the intake to think about asking questions. Sometimes they feel too embarrassed to ask, you know, questions about housing or food or transportation or other sorts of issues. But we've worked toward um, at least having questionnaires. A lot of places are now doing that. But then and what do you do with the questionnaire? So if you check the box and say, no, I don't have access to food, what happens then? And so that's sort of what my research is designed to look at is to say, well, now we need some kind of strategy to say, you know, if they check, no, you know, where do they go? Who, what are the resources? What is healthcare's role in that? What is the insurance company's role in that? Like, what do the payers do? What does the healthcare system do? Because ultimately the people that lack, uh, Food, clothing, sh- you know, shelter—all of these things will e- will en- end up in the emergency room, and you know, and tend to be uh, the most expensive patients for the healthcare system. So the ones that are that you know, healthcare systems that have an emergency room all the way through to post-acute to clinical practices are very attuned to this, you know, because they are paying the bill one way or the other. And wouldn't we prefer that people pay for food than pay for um, ER visits? Well, an excellent point. I love that point. And and I'm going to add one other dimension to that. So not only is it less expensive to solve hunger than it is to keep it, which is one of the things that we have talked about many times in many different ways, and the point you've just so eloquently made, when healthcare pays for it, taxpayers pay for it. It's not something you can push off to healthcare and say, well, they have a lot of money. They can afford to pay for it. No, 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 no. Who's paying healthcare? It's the government is the biggest single payer. So if you say healthcare is going to pay for this, what you're essentially saying is, I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to pay my taxes, and my taxes are going to cover these bills. And I don't care if the bills are higher, because, you know, it's easier not to grapple with this problem. So I'm just going to pay my taxes and be happy. Is that what we're saying? In fact, it's what we're saying. But I don't think it's what we want to say. And so therein lies the significance of research like this. We know, all of us know, we would like to see these costs be more reasonable for people. But if we don't grapple with the easy things like food, which is very accessible, very inexpensive relatively, and has a huge impact on people's health. If we say, nah, that's too complicated to deal with, well, then what we're essentially saying is we'll just pay the taxes. So... Just thinking about that, we got to take a quick break. But before we do, you know, I'm just thinking about again. We talk about Maslow's hierarchy of need here quite often, and physiological is one, so air, water, food, and the second is safety, and we equate that to be housing, which is another social determinant of health. But out of those two, creating food security is such an easier solution 
than building more affordable housing. Now, I think we should build more affordable housing, and we need to, and we, we've got to tackle with that right on top of each other. But food is way cheaper than housing. You know, And, what I'm and pharmaceuticals. So, you know, so that's... That right. really is a nice segue into talking about food as medicine and something that some of my research is now going moving toward. So I would love to talk more about that. We're going to do that next in just a moment. So Dr. Don Opal, Jerry Brisson, me, Dr. Phil Knight, this is Food for Thought. Come back and be with us in just a moment. You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're back. Dr. Dawn Opal, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here with you. And uh, I'm just going to tell you to buckle up for this segment because, um, all right, here we go. Just just dive in here, kids. <laughs> Food is medicine. Here we go. Yeah, so I'm I'm really thrilled to talk about that I think the next step in this is really to start thinking about how we work on the social determinants of health alongside healthcare and think about how health insurance is about much more than just clinical health. And so um, so one of the things that I've been working on and talking about and I'm in very early um, discussions with several groups in Michigan is how to create a, a food is medicine legislation for the state of Michigan, meaning that looking at how we can, instead of draining Medicaid and health insurance, sending health insurance costs to new plateaus every single year through chronic care management, which is very expensive. So folks with heart conditions, diabetes, obesity, these are these are the folks that come and present themselves in the emergency room as sick rather than um, having the food and particularly the healthy food and lifestyle that is required to keep those chronic conditions um, and keep yourself healthy with managing those chronic conditions. So the thought behind food as medicine is that if you spend the, the money up front on food, on healthy food, then you can better manage chronic conditions that won't send you to the mm -hmm. ER or to acute care. Therefore, your spending for Medicaid, um, for um, health insurance spending goes way down if those most expensive patients have healthy food and your point jerry is that's the all everybody in this room and everybody listening to us we're paying for that care one way or the other yeah. you know and so so i i think the other part about food is medicine that i like is that there is a concrete number of people who access the system that present with the problem, you can count it, you can know it, you can measure the impact of it, and not only does it drive down the cost of health care, it improves people's ability to manage their life. And ultimately, people managing their own life gets us to the community we want to have. Mm -hmm. And people want to manage their own life. So when you give food to a lot of people and, and then you say, well, some of them are going to be so successful that it's going to lower our health care costs substantially. But even the ones that are less successful are managing their life better. So you're, you're getting multiple positive uh, impacts mm -hmm. in the community with one very doable solution. And with healthcare being one-fifth of the economy and growing, 
we all know we're going to have to find a way to grapple with this. It is hard for people to change their lifestyle. We know this isn't a simple thing to do, but right. through the pantry work that we've done, and we had a huge um, initiative called the Healthy Pantry Initiative, where mm-hmm. we specifically um, asked pantries to help us distribute more fruits and vegetables, more of the healthy food that people want and need. What we learned was the vast majority, well over 80% of the people who were getting the fresh fruit and vegetables wanted it. And and actually consumed it. This is food that people want. It's not like we're giving them a, a drug they don't want to use or that has some side effect they don't like. This is food people want and need on top of the fact that it lowers costs and helps them manage their life. There just isn't a downside to this. So out of 181 million pounds of food that the Food Bank Council of Michigan Network distributed last year, 81 million pounds of that was fresh fruits and vegetables. So that's a ratio that's good and is only going to get better. But this concept of medically tailored meals, medically tailored food, um, and, you know, I, I've said for years that everything starts west and comes east. You know, culture, entertainment, you know, uh, style, dress, you know, I think of it, it, it comes... And it looks like California is leading the way in this as well. Yeah, so they were able to, um, what I find really amazing and also the power of research is that they did did find um, through several research studies that uh, when you create an economic model in which you treat chronic care, uh, particularly, they were particularly focused on diabetes uh, and, and perhaps... I think that I think it was just focused on uh, of folks managing diabetes. They found that um, that the cost to Medicaid over a several year longitudinal study was significantly less. And so when you look more in the aggregate, they could make the argument to California taxpayers that you know everyone's concerned that Medicaid um, and that Medicare are that you know will bankrupt America and that this is going to be you know that there's a lot of um, discourse around the cost of the uh, you know Obamacare and. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Medicaid, what they were able to do is say, look, you know, we can show you with numbers that Medicaid is the cost to Medicaid are less if those that are the most reliant on the healthcare system for the management of chronic conditions receive medically tailored meals. Um, And so when you put the money in preventatively as food, you actually are going to spend less as a taxpayer into this sector of the economy um, or into this, you know, of this portion of, 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 of spending. So as a result, they were able to pass legislation uh, that now is funding uh, medically tailored meals for uh, for uh, to the tune of I mean, it's in the multiple like I want to say like twenty seven million dollars um, for the next mm-hmm. year to try uh, to try to see if that actually pans out on a really wide scale. This is the most wide scale food as medicine initiative to date. Um, so to see if they actually do get that bang for their buck and can see the ways that spending that this preventative spending spending versus reactionary spending. Um, so, Jerry, we talked about this study that was in Pennsylvania yes. that a lot of this California legislation is based on, and we've talked about how do we, we need, we've said on the show, we need that here in Michigan. Right. You know, we've talked about that, and so I'm going to say it again, we need that here in Michigan. So, c- can you two talk a little bit about what you would see as next steps Well, I certainly think continuing to consolidate research and help people have access to the research, understand the research, and be willing to add to 
of that that body of knowledge. I think we need to we need to continue to know more. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that there is skepticism around especially lower anything that that you say lowers health care costs because there's been many, many, many hundreds of opportunities that healthcare is, has done with the objective of lowering costs, and costs still go up. So it's a system that's complicated. It has a lot of moving parts, and uh, tackling one aspect of the system without looking holistically at it may or may not get you as far as you think. So it is important for us to to continue to add to the body of knowledge so that we can be, as I said, we need to know who shows up food insecure, how much help do they need, and for how long. We really need to be able to answer those questions so that healthcare can manage this issue appropriately for them. I don't think it's fair to burden the healthcare system with the entire problem of food insecurity because right. they don't own it all and nor should they. But they would acknowledge and have acknowledged and continue to try to acknowledge they do have a role and they want to partner to understanding better what that role is. Getting pilots I guess it's significantly more than a pilot at this point. Getting projects that spend upwards of twenty million or twenty-five million or whatever that number is to try medically tailored meals is going to teach us a lot, and we've got to make sure that people in Michigan get those results as soon as possible. The second thing is we are an agricultural state, so there is food going to the waste in our state to the millions and millions of pounds a year because we can't afford to harvest it. So when you marry the surplus food with the potential cost savings for an institution as big as healthcare, you're now starting to really drive things in the right direction in terms of applying solutions that are inexpensive but big enough to really show results and i think that's where the marriage of all this needs to be and you know what i think is really interesting about this is that it requires buy-in and it requires collaboration across so many different sectors i mean it's really uh it's really in terms of research it's the kind of a research project that requires so many ex- levels of expertise on so many levels to really get mm-hmm. at this so the project that i'm working on um that that was recently funded by the michigan health endowment fund uh, my team includes a health economist because we're really, you know, it's not enough to just say, um, you know, it's not it's not enough to just say, okay, we think that, you know, I can see anecdotally that, you know, that this is working or, you know, that or that, you know, we've got this many number of meals distributed or this many, you know, but it's really about creating models that we can really make the case then um, in terms of public policy. And that's really what I see the future of this work being. So starting at this kernel of working with one nonprofit that provides medically tailored meals in Grand Rapids and starting to track that nonprofit's um, sort of referrals through the different health systems in Grand Rapids and thinking about the ways that they are whether they are coordinating care for particular patients. Um, So, you know, thinking about then who bears the cost and where does it lie and how does it change that person's life? Um, You know, on a very that starts very, very small, but but you can see that over time it starts to really grow into, well, then let's send this to an economist to look at, you know, the ways that this has impacted the, you know, the the healthcare spending over a certain number of of years and then 
right. let's look at you know how this affects that person's ability to work or how mm-hmm. this affects you know there are so many factors that are involved that having you know I work with people all the way from the medical school to you know uh, you know in like eight disciplines to try to get at this to think about the ways that this huh. one little research project can become something that is um, that that is persuasive to public policymakers and to 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 citizens as well. Dr. Don Opal, thank you for being with us. Um, you are a professor, a qualitative researcher, an attorney, and you're taking your one handful of life, which you could you could spend in many different places, but instead you're investing it in something that's much bigger than any of us and will last longer than we do, and we commend you for it. And I'm just going to say right now, it is a cr- little Christmas miracle happening right in front of us. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dawn, thanks for being here with us. And um, honestly, I think there's so much here to unpack that we're going to have to ask you to come back. Oh, thank you so much, Phil. That means so much. I'm so appreciative for our collaborative work and um, very excited about what's ahead. So thanks so much. Great to have you. Jerry and I will be right back to close out this edition of Food for Thought. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight, presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. I guess it's time for a little food for thought. One of my favorite quotes says, Today's accomplishments were yesterday's impossibilities. And that's just true. When polio hit, many believed it to be the end. But here we are, alive and thriving. I do not underestimate the problem of hunger in our state, but neither do I underestimate our ability to deal with it. I want to think about what's possible, not just what's impossible. Look, anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but it takes a unique, positive person to contemplate the potential of how many apples are in the seed. That's the thinking that changes more than just the conversation. Thanks for listening, and remember you can catch all of our shows at foodsecuremichigan.org. Jerry and I are both on Twitter. Find us and follow us. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Dawn Opal, our producer, Mark Blackwell, and until next week, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.